Hi there, it's Anita Johnson, and just a quick request before we get started. Please rate us on iTunes or wherever you catch our podcast. That helps other people to find us. And of course, give us a high rating. Thanks, and here's the show. Making, making, making contact. Making contact. <laughs> I'm Anita Johnson, and this is Making Contact. Up next, we continue with our look at a community of unhoused people in Echo Park in Los Angeles, California, and how they were forcibly evicted by police despite an enormous show of support from protesters. Thanks to our podcast partners at 70 Million, we bring you part two of Punished and Persecuted for Being Unhoused and How Homelessness is Criminalized. More than a quarter of the people experiencing homelessness in the U.S. live in California. Nowhere is the unhoused crisis more visible than in the city of Los Angeles, where almost 30,000 people camp out on sidewalks and in parks every night. But living in most public spaces is a crime. And the city deploys law enforcement officers and sanitation workers to harass or evict people from their encampments. While homeless service workers struggle to connect people with housing, some city officials say the system is working and that people are locating housing. Others that once lived unhoused say the system is rigged to look like it's working and claim that some of the housing feels less like home and more like jail. Will Sins. They're not seeing the carcerality in the system because they haven't experienced it. They can't sense it, you know, they can't smell it. In part one of a part two episode, Mark Betancourt told the story of a group of unhoused people in Los Angeles who wrote out the first year of the pandemic by building a community in Echo Park. Residents in the surrounding neighborhood organized against it and successfully lobbied city officials to force out people living in the park. In part two, Mark looks at where they went. In late March of 2021, after 400 police officers squared off against hundreds of protesters at Echo Park, and the last unhoused residents left their lakeside encampment, activists and unhoused residents called foul. This notion of people were taken from the park into housing is just simply not true. Ashley Bennett is an organizer with Ground Game LA. She was involved from the beginning of the Echo Park Lake encampment. She helped organize protests to stop the city from clearing the camp, which she calls blockades. And she was there at the end, helping unhoused people figure out where they could go when the city finally closed the park. What we'd been asking for, you know, from the beginning of the blockades was hotel rooms. The asks that we were making prior had fallen upon deaf ears. But then there was a new group of housed residents called Friends of Echo Park Lake who started like emailing and calling in and having meetings about needing to have people removed from the park. And shortly after that group started gaining traction and going to city council meetings, the rooms finally started being offered. The city was offering hotel rooms as part of Project Room Key. It was funded by the Federal Emergency Management Agency, FEMA, and the goal was to get unhoused people who were especially vulnerable to COVID-19 indoors, where they'd be better protected from infection. The city referred to it as interim housing, a safe place to sleep while waiting for permanent housing. And the program got a lot of people indoors, with more than 10,000 participants in the first two years of the pandemic. 
but only about 40% of those participants moved from the program into permanent housing. The city offered the rest other forms of interim housing, including shelters. Outreach workers flooded Echo Park, offering temporary housing to the people living there. At the same time, it was clear the city was not going to let them stay in the park. Police officers would drive around and they would like drive on in the park on the grass and you know make the rounds and tell people you know they're gonna you can't be here you can't be here. Caesar Segura, who goes by Wall Street, was one of the unhoused residents who helped build the Echo Park encampment. A lot of people got scared and and they thought Project Room Kid was a solution, at least a temporary solution for them. Wall Street and his wife Jessica Mendez, who goes by Queen had heard that there were strict rules in the Project Roomkey hotels. They worried they were being pushed into an unstable situation. There was a moment where I considered it, especially like the days had gone on with no sleep, with the constant pounding, with the constant lights, with the constant helicopters. The people that were coming in, you know, to give us services like shoes, socks, food, weren't coming anymore. The vendors weren't showing up anymore. So they literally kind of like bottlenecked us into like, either making a decision or leaving the park. Queen is undocumented. She didn't see how she could qualify for a permanent housing program if she didn't have a Social Security number. So she and Wall Street decided to stick it out in the park. If you haven't heard their story, we recommend you go back and listen to part one of this episode. It turned out that what Queen and Wall Street were concerned about, that Project Roomkey would be a dead end, ended up happening to a lot of people from the park. Will Sens and his girlfriend, Sarah, had been living in the park for months. When outreach workers offered them temporary housing, they jumped at the chance. I spoke to Will in July of 2022. At that point, he and Sarah had been living in a hotel room in Project Room Key for a year and a half. Like everyone who has experienced homelessness, Will came to it in a specific way, and the experience shaped who he is. I grew up in Calvert County, Maryland, in, in Chesapeake Beach on the Chesapeake Bay. I met Will in the parking lot out back of the restaurant where he washes dishes. He's 45, with youthful looks that belie his short silver hair. I grew up in a Jehovah's Witness household. I was about 22, 23. I decided not to be a Jehovah's Witness anymore, and that was began my first foray into the world of being homeless. It was really scary. It was the whole thing was scary because um, I was suddenly without anyone, without my family. From those years of being on the road and on the street, it set me up to be prepared to be on the street at, at a moment's notice. Will ended up moving to L.A. In 2020, he was working at another restaurant, living in an office space rented by friends, when the COVID-19 pandemic hit. Like many people, Will lost his job, then his housing. So he lived on the street. I'm good at hiding myself. There's, like, a certain kind of situation that I look for to set up for the night. A dark street, I would curl up around a tree beside a car. And it, it's covers enough angles that 
cops would never see me there. Will says he normally wouldn't have set up in an encampment. He didn't trust other people. But Echo Park would turn out to be different. I had a friend that was staying in Echo Park Lake. And I would go and visit him. There was always people coming through with food. There's always bathrooms there and water. So I, I would go there at least a, a couple of times a week just to get something to eat. Also, I had Sarah with me by that time. Will's girlfriend Sarah has a health condition that affects her liver. He says they decided to move into Echo Park full-time because it was healthier for her there. And we had a tent and everything, so it was better for her to be stabilized in a spot than to be wandering around with a cart, you know? When outreach workers started coming to the park in late 2020, offering hotel rooms with Project Room Key, it was a no-brainer. Sarah clearly qualified. She needed to get inside. She has underlying health conditions, and I wanted to get her off the street. She was just, like, not doing well. Will says the outreach workers weren't just offering rooms to people who qualified. They told us to claim that we had some kind of ailment, to make sure that we did that so that we could get in. They said, you're going to have to say something to get into this place because it's for people that are sick or elderly. So you're going to have to tell them something. And I told them I have asthma, which is true. Will and Sarah signed up for a Project Room Key room. All they knew was that they'd be getting inside. They didn't know how long they'd be able to stay or whether they'd be able to move from the hotel into permanent housing. When the bus came to pick them up from Echo Park, Will says he didn't even know where it was going. It headed downtown and dropped them off at the L.A. Grand Hotel, only a few minutes from the park they'd just left. Lhasa, the Los Angeles Homeless Services Authority, had temporarily bought out the entire hotel and contracted with the Salvation Army to run the Project Roomkey program there. To get into the hotel, Will, Sarah, and the other new arrivals had to go through a security checkpoint in the lobby. They looked through our things and they uh, used the metal detector wand. What are they looking for? Weapons and drugs. Before the Grand closed to travelers to become a Project Roomkey site, it was a four-star hotel with a pool, a restaurant, and room service. Not surprisingly, those amenities were not available to participants in Project Roomkey. Even so, Will says he had no complaints about the room. I was happy to be inside. It's nice to have a shower. And I found out later that we had a like, really good room. A lot of the rooms don't have tubs. Ours does. But there were other aspects of life at the Grand that he quickly discovered were not easy to deal with. There was a curfew. All participants had to be inside the hotel by 7 p.m. or they'd be locked out. It's not feasible for most people to, to be in by 7 if you want to keep a job, if you want to have any kind of life. Many people who didn't make curfew ended up having to spend the night on the street. Will says there was a list for people who needed to come in late because of their jobs, but the guards would often forget to put people on it. It's disorganization and chaos. They weren't allowed to have visitors, not even from other rooms inside the hotel. And there was no congregating in the common spaces. I got in trouble for talking to my friend in the hallway. Uh, we were walking down the hall together, talking, and they made us stop talking and told us that they were going to write us up if we didn't stop talking. Project Room Key participants didn't actually get a key to their rooms. They had to ask the program staff for permission to be let in. 
residents started calling it Project No Key. The staff could enter the rooms. They had to do a temperature check on all participants three times a day to guard against COVID outbreaks. But residents complained that staff came into their rooms when they were sleeping or in the shower. Participants also couldn't have anything in their rooms that could be used as a weapon. People can't have their tools in their rooms. Can't have scissors. Um, The tools has been a big issue because a lot of people can't do their jobs because their tools will be confiscated. So it's like this extra stress, like constantly, you know. Will says one of the hardest parts about living in Project Roomkey is the constant threat of being terminated. That's what Roomkey staff call it when you break the rules and they kick you out. It's also called being exited. If they say that you can't leave your room or you'll be exited from the program, you can't leave your room. Will and other Roomkey participants have said that the staff seem to be making up some of the rules as they go along throwing participants into a constant state of uncertainty. I talked to a woman named Mama Cat. Her initials are C-A-T, and she's always cooking for people, so Mama Cat. She lived in a Project Room Key Hotel called the Mayfair, not far from the Grand. I needed a special diet. They couldn't provide it. And so I had a little tiny knife, and I was making vegetables, and they, the guards were my friends, so they were like, they, sailed, they went and searched your room. They found a little pocket knife and wrote me up. It's like, they're going to try to exit me. The Mayfair was run by a nonprofit called Helpline Youth Counseling. When Mama Cat went to ask some of the staff why she was being written up for having a pocket knife, she knew they'd push back. So she filmed it on her phone. Because it's just a small pocket knife. It was in there. Well, how am I supposed to cut my vegetables and feed myself? You guys don't feed us properly. I can't cut a potato with a plastic knife. I would like to speak to Lassa about it because I want this resolved. And don't film me. Stop filming me. Stop filming me, or I'm going to terminate you. I said stop filming me. Thank you very much. And delete it because nobody gave you permission. Nobody. I don't need permission. You do need I live here. I'm a resident here, darling. You're not a resident. You're a participant. I'm a participant. Okay. You're a participant. It took less than a minute of this conversation for the staff at the Mayfair to remind Mama Cat of two things. First, that they can exit her from Project Room Key if she disobeys them. Second, that she doesn't have the rights of a resident or a tenant. She's a participant. And that's an important distinction. When you are a tenant, you sign a lease, you sign a legal document, and there are laws that protect you as a tenant and protect the landlord. Those laws don't apply when you don't sign a lease. Here's Molly Reisman, chief programs officer at LASA. And it needs to be different because we want to quickly get people into interim housing. Interim housing is an emergency solution. The way it's supposed to work and the way we want it to work is that you move in in an emergency situation and you're only there a short time. And then to get their own apartment where they can have those legal rights and protections and all the things that come along with having your own apartment. So the idea is that in order to facilitate getting people off the street quickly, LASA takes them under its wing, takes responsibility for them, And doing that means taking away much of the autonomy that the rest of us expect in our living situations. 
there do have to be some rules because you want the space to be safe. You don't want people to be exposed to violence. You don't want people to be exposed to verbal abuse. You don't want, you know, unhealthy situations. Um, There's all sorts of things that come up. Um, I think any of us who've lived with roommates know there's all sorts of situations that come up um, that can create conflict and even beyond conflict, create a space that's unsafe for people to be in. Project Room Key had the added challenge of the COVID pandemic. So people needed to have their temperature checked when they entered the space. They weren't supposed to leave, you know, beyond a curfew because we didn't have nurses who could check for COVID symptoms if someone showed up at 2 a.m. So the reason is the reason for all of the rules, the curfew, the fact that they can't interact with each other um, in their rooms and all that sort of stuff. Is that all related to COVID? Is that all to protect from transmission? Well, some of the rules, I guess, that are also around safety, which we always have rules in all of our programs around safety. So so the big difference, I guess what I was going to ask is the big difference with a roommate situation is like you're allowed to have a knife in your kitchen, in your apartment, and you're, you know what I mean? Like you're, there's sort of like a level of trust with a roommate situation. And so how is this population different than from the way that all, all the rest of us deal with, you know, each other? Yeah, no, there's expectations on the public sector. I mean, these are publicly funded programs. They're paid for with taxpayer dollars. And so there's expectations around that they're going to be safe. Will sees it differently. It's important for Project Roomkey to have us as participants instead of tenants because um, it helps them to, to maintain their control over the building. There's so many rules just made to make people easier to, to control. And what do you think the goal of that control is? What are they trying to accomplish by controlling you? Well, they're just making their job easier in their mind, I'm sure. Will gave me this example. He says the staff sometimes put notices on every door in the hotel. It just says that the hotel is closing, basically, and tells you to find a shelter if, if you need to. After getting one of these notices, Will asked a staff member what was going on. I was like, what are we supposed to do about this? I don't have housing. Um, I don't have any place to go. And he just kind of downplayed it. Oh, that's just for other people. That's not for you. You're a good example of uh, um, the kind of people that we want here. This is for other people that aren't getting up to find work and are just using the hotel to get drunk and and take drugs or what, you know, he just tried to put it on other people with what he would call um, unsatisfactory behavior. What did, so what did he mean when he was talking about you being good, do you think? I get that a lot and it's just because I dress a certain way and I carry myself a certain way and there's certain behavior that they, um, that they reward and and other behavior that they punish. As we talked, Will kept using the same word to describe Project Room Key, carceral. Will is one of about 10 Project Room Key participants, many of whom had also lived at Echo Park Lake and saw the benefits of community building and organizing, 
who joined with other unhoused people and activists to form ATTACK, Unhoused Tenants Against Carceral Housing. We came together to, to, first of all, to get the right to come in later than 7 o'clock. ATTACK convinced Lhasa to change the curfew to 10 p.m. and to officially reverse one of the eviction notices participants had gotten. They also demanded everything from keys to their rooms to better food. The group was also a way to connect people living in different Project Room Key sites. By comparing notes, they found that some providers were better than others. At the Mayfair, where Mama Cat lived, residents reported being given no toilet paper. Attack's greatest asset to the community is the, the unifying of people, of different factions of people, like housed, unhoused, from different parts of the city under one uh, blanket so, so that we can share information and figure out how to get what we need. In the meantime, Will and Sarah were still waiting for housing, real housing, and it's not easy to find. In 2021, as part of the American Rescue Plan, the federal government issued thousands of emergency housing vouchers, specifically for unhoused people. The city of Los Angeles got about 3,600 vouchers. But as of late October 2022, only about 15% of them had been used. Will and Sarah found out why. They had a voucher, but couldn't find a landlord who would accept it. They treat the emergency housing voucher like it's the coronavirus. Many landlords run criminal background and credit checks on prospective tenants, a practice that's devastating for unhoused applicants who are more likely to have run-ins with law enforcement and have trouble maintaining good credit. What we have here is, is like a hunt, hunt and peck kind of thing that's just like, it's prolonged to the point that we might get kicked out of the hotel before we can get a place. Here's Lhasa's Molly Reisman again. There's a huge lack of supply of permanent housing, both in terms of rental subsidies provided by the federal government and in terms of the actual physical apartments we can find. And so what we find is that we're in this terrible situation where people move into interim housing and they might be stuck there for a year. And these are hard, hard places to live for a year. When we talked, Will and Sarah had been staying at the Grand for 17 months. And they weren't the only ones stuck in limbo. 183 people left Echo Park Lake to go into interim housing. As of September 2022, only 17 had found permanent housing. Echo Park Lake isn't the only place where the city has cleared unhoused people out of public space. In July of 2021, about 200 people were living on Venice Beach in Mike Bonin's district. He's the city council member we heard from in part one of this story. But he says that effort had a very different outcome. We have um, 106 people who are permanently housed and another 34 still in interim with a voucher. Mike says what made the difference was the city's motivation for clearing the beach. I, I went into it saying, you know, our measure of success is not clearing Venice Beach and clearing the space. The measure of success is housing people. If we go in and we try to house people, the public space will be reopened to the general public as a consequence of that effort. Uh, and that was not the goal going in. So, you know, we, we 
we, we were very open uh, and we were very deliberate and we were very methodical and, and relationships were built. And we actually offered people housing. But the truth is, there's not enough housing to do this for all the almost 42,000 unhoused people in Los Angeles. Mike has advocated for policies like turning vacant apartments into affordable housing, rewriting zoning laws so that developers have to build more affordable housing, and more short-term subsidies, like the one Queen and Wall Street used to get settled in their apartment. Those solutions, when they are happening, are happening too rarely and too slowly and too expensively. That's partly because new housing developments intended for unhoused people are often met with resistance from housed neighbors. Mike says homelessness is a hard problem to solve, but it's made harder by a particularly poisonous idea. People are homeless by choice. They're dangerous. They're, they're drug addicts. They don't want housing. And all the government wants to do is funnel millions of dollars to their developer buddies to, to get them indoors. So it breeds this anger that the system isn't just failing, but that the system is designed to fail. It, it has gone over the past few years from something a handful of people would throw out at a town hall meeting objecting to, you know, homeless housing, to what is really a dominant theme in political discourse. Mike Bonin, who saw how the city worked from the inside for nine years. I cannot count the number of days and hours and debates the council has had about laws criminalizing homelessness or lawsuits about laws criminalizing homelessness. Uh, a fraction of that time has been spent figuring out how to deal with the systemic causes of homelessness or how to more quickly and more cost-effectively get people off the streets. And it is a, a, a phenomenon born of frustration and anger and, and elected officials looking for not even a real quick fix, but a perceived quick fix. A perceived quick fix. So who's the audience? Mike says officials need a quick fix because their constituents demand it. If elected officials had more people pressuring them and nudging them, approaching them at the farmer's market or a church saying, we need more housing, we need more services for people who are unhoused, that would start happening. But instead, you get the people saying, don't, don't, don't. Riley Montgomery was one of the housed residents in the Echo Park neighborhood who didn't want people living in the park, but also wanted the city to find housing for them. We heard from him in part one. In a phone conversation before we met in person, sorry for the quality, I asked him what he knew about where unhoused people went after the park closed. All I knew is that people were going to be transferred into the L.A. Grand Hotel. They were giving, they were offered housing vouchers and that that uh, housing voucher would eventually turn into permanent housing. It's not like they were kicking people out. They were transitioning them to a five-star hotel in downtown L.A. In Riley's defense, the city didn't exactly hold press conferences following up, telling the public how their unhoused neighbors from Echo Park Lake were doing a year later. But Will wants people like Riley to look deeper. They're not seeing the carcerality in the system because they haven't experienced it. They can't sense it, you know? They can't smell it. It's just so easy to just, like, take, take it and be like, okay, it's being handled. It's really hard to confront a problem that you don't know how to 
yes. do anything about, especially personally, yes. you know, where you, if you feel like that's unacceptable, but I don't know how to fix it, that's a really uncomfortable feeling. Yes, definitely. But it's something that if we're going to evolve as a species and we're going to like stay on this planet, we're going to have to figure out how to do that and be okay with it. Like you have to know what hot dogs are made of. You got to find out what are they made of. You can't just keep gulping down this gross, disgusting and saying it's okay because it's not and you know it. Stop turning your blind eye, a blind eye to, to the issues, even if you can't do anything about it. Because you're, what it does is it creates an unnatural perspective of the world around you. And you act on an unnatural perspective and you're treating people based on an assumption that's not true. You know, there's a whole sequence that put me here that you're not aware of. Thank you to reporter Mark Betancourt from part two of the series, Punished and Persecuted for Being Unhoused, from the podcast 70 Million. For more information about today's program and the unhoused crisis in California, visit us at radioproject.org. I'm Anita Johnson. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Thank you.